In this episode, we cover some of the more profound chapters in the Book of Mormon, and I do it with Andrew Skinner, who is one of our more profound scholars and has such a, a great way of seeing uh, and understanding the, the scholarship and the, the intellectual elements of the text, but also a way of seeing the heart of the the spirit and the testimony and the, the power of the text. And we discuss Christ's atoning sacrifice and uh, the ways that we can take advantage of it and those things that make it harder for us to take advantage of it in ways that were uh, even surprising for me and that were uh, moving for me. And I still love doing this with Dr. Skinner. I think you're going to love this episode. Hello, and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and I'm so happy to have back with me my dear friend and one of our most popular guests, uh, Dr. Andrew Skinner, who, uh, if you've been listening to the, the podcast for very long, you've certainly heard me introduce him before. So maybe I'll just say uh, I won't... Uh, divulge too much information. This story just came to me, but uh, a colleague of ours uh, happened to see Dr. Skinner in a, uh, an ecclesiastical setting he's in now, and uh, he was uh, talking to some people, and he thought to himself, those young uh, people don't have any idea how fortunate they are to be learning at the feet <laughs> of, of Andrew Skinner. So, and I, I suspect that's right. Uh, just a, a blessing to all of us. So, uh, and a blessing in my life, just as a friend and, and a mentor and colleague and teacher. So welcome. Uh, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie. And uh, what, what you said is so nice about, 25% of it is true, uh, but back at you. Uh, <laughs> well, same to you, but more of it. <laughs> that's that's probably true of most of what I say. About 25% of it is true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for, for a lot of us, I suspect, maybe. So I just want to make uh, our audience aware of two things that will be helpful for them as we do this discussion, because there's so much in here that we won't be able to talk about. So we're definitely dealing with some Isaiah chapters in here. And we won't be able to have the, the ability to plumb the depths of those. But my book, uh, Learning to Love Isaiah, I do specifically give verse-by-verse -verse commentary for every chapter in Isaiah. So you can get a commentary on the Isaiah part. But I also have Book of Mormon highlights that will help you recognize what Jacob is doing with the Isaiah text in, in this sermon and so on. And you'll also find that helpful for our next couple of readings where we do a lot more Isaiahs. And it's on sale right now. So if you go to SiegelBook.com, you can get that book, Learning to Love Isaiah. Uh, and I think it's designed, I tried to design it to help you with your Book of Mormon study of these Isaiah chapters. So I think that will be helpful for you. Also, uh, we discussed these specific chapters in a workshop. So this is kind of like Jacob's workshop with his uh, people. But we, uh, in a workshop I did on the Book of Mormon, we discussed these chapters. And sometimes some of it's a little hard to hear because it's a workshop format that we're trying to turn into a video for you. But that's available on our website where we're trying to put all of this extra material. So that's SAR, that's T-S-A-R for the Scriptures Are Real. So it's SAR.website. And uh, if you subscribe there, the subscription is only to help us cover the fees of doing this editing. It takes a lot to edit the video from the workshop and so on uh, and hosting the, the um, website and all these kinds of things. So uh, we hope you'll just subscribe and take advantage of these fantastic things that we're putting on there for you to help you get more and more out of the Book of Mormon. So those are two things that should help you with 
the reading for this week. Goodness, we have so many wonderful things uh, coming up. I just wanted to give you some updates on all of them. So uh, we're it's just right upon us. Tuesday, February 20th, we have the Live Isaiah event. That's free for anyone who's part of our Patreon website. So go to tsar, T-S-A-R dot website, become a member for $10, and you get this event for free. Then you also get a discount if you do that. But either way, you can uh, be part of our Book of Mormon workshop on uh, February 23rd and 24th. There are Zoom options. There are um, options for being in person and couples discounts, all sorts of things. So we're going to have so much fun going through some of the material that we're about to cover in uh, our Come Follow Me reading and doing it in depth and together. You can register for that on the Patreon website. So that's SAR.website. Then we also have these two workshops, the one in Missouri, uh, that is going to be fantastic. We've been able to do a virtual tour of the place we're uh, going to be staying. It is just such a great setting, such a great place to do workshops with facilities where we can do it and eat together while we talk and, and have classrooms and even breakout sessions if we want in, in the different classrooms they have. And then to to be able to be with me and with, uh, especially with Alex Baugh, uh, you will come to understand church history better and understand and appreciate all of the fantastic, uh, amazing uh, sacrifices and uh, growth that happened in Missouri. It will just really, I, I'm so excited for that. So um, you can learn about that on the website, but uh, register by emailing us at the scriptures are real at gmail.com. We're taking registrations via email and uh, we're, this is just going to be fantastic. Then we have the church history tour that is at the uh, end of May, beginning of June. So the, the Missouri workshop is the first weekend in June or April. Uh, the, the church history workshop you can also learn about on the website, but uh, please email us at the scriptures real at gmail.com. Uh, we've gotten everything lined up there. Uh, fantastic places we're staying. Uh, we're going to do great things, and there's some new things. If you've been to, to these places before, we're going to show you some things you haven't seen before. So uh, it's, it's going to be wonderful. So uh, email us for the, the tour the, and uh, the Missouri workshop and register for the others on the website and just enjoy all of the wonderful things that are happening. So uh, if I understand correctly, uh, the texts for our uh, consideration this period are uh, chapters 6 through 10 of Second Nephi. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> and it, it, it really is not only good stuff, it's amazing stuff. Uh, I have to say at the beginning that uh, this section of scriptures, this section of chapters, contains one of the most powerful chapters doctrinally in the entire Book of Mormon. Uh, and I'm speaking, of course, of chapter 9 yeah. of Second Nephi, where we're taught so many um, incredibly important uh, doctrines and principles, uh, the importance of repentance, uh, what would happen if there was no atonement and no opportunity to repent? Uh, the principles of the infinite atonement, the nature of restoration. And, and I, if it's okay with you, let me just pause and say parenthetically uh, that from, I think, uh, now on, we get a, a real sense that the Book of Mormon serves as a divine tutorial not only in the doctrine of resurrection, but how resurrection is related to the larger law of restoration. Mm. Uh, this is a unique contribution, I think, of the Book of Mormon, that, that resurrection really is part of the larger 
principle of restoration and restoration in so many different ways, but the restoration of the of the spirit and the body. And so, uh, again, we realize how blessed we are to have the Book of Mormon, unique things that we can't find anywhere else. Uh, we also uh, learn about the law of justice and the detrimental effects of pride and other powerful principles that are found in 2 Nephi chapter 9. So all of that is to say uh, we are so blessed to have uh, this section of the Book of Mormon, and I love it, and I know that you do too. I've yeah. heard you say some pretty powerful things about this as well. I, I think that these chapters, and you're right, chapter 9, just mind-blowing, but really these chapters together as, as kind of a unit are... I, I don't think it, you can find places that may equal it, but I don't think you can find a more rich uh, and and a, a beautifully woven together uh, sermon or, or set of teachings uh, anywhere in Scripture. It is just incredible stuff. Yeah, in fact, uh, you, you remind me that if I had to choose uh, 20 of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, Second uh, Nephi 9 and the context— yeah, uh, of uh, chapter nine would would be on my list, you know, yep. and and others will have uh, other chapters to add, uh, Second Nephi chapter two, and so on and so forth. But pretty pretty important things. Uh, but but before we take a deep dive into chapter nine, I would like, with your permission, to just go back and uh, set the stage for Second Nephi chapters six through ten. Yeah, I uh, think we need to. Yeah, they are a response to a specific uh, context, right? So. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we, we're now, um, 40 years have passed since Le Lehi has left Jerusalem. Uh, Lehi has passed away, as recorded in chapter 4. Nephi and his people have separated from Laman and Lemuel and their people. Uh, and so the division is cemented, the Nephites and the Lamanites. Uh, by this time, we learn in chapter 5 that Nephi has built a temple. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Nephi demonstrates his multi-sided leadership, if I can use that terminology. He has taught his people to be industrious, uh, chapter mm -hmm. 5, uh, verse 17. And he has taught his people to build buildings, and he's taught people, his people, to work uh, with all kinds of materials, to work with their hands. So we get a, up to this point, we get a real sense of his, of his multifaceted leadership. Uh, we see that Nephi has taken with him records of his people, and and to me, this is not an insignificant uh, detail. Because we learned that uh, in the Book of Mormon and in other places, other historical records, that the records of those who have gone before us uh, anchor us, the rising generation, and and pass on uh, values, societal values, and family values, and they pass on information. Uh, records teach us the language that that our uh, predecessors have spoken. They teach us about the culture. And maybe most important, they teach us about uh, faith in God and the faith that our, uh, our ancestors have demonstrated that helps us to be uh, more faithful. And, I, and I, 
I can't help but think of one of the sterling examples of the importance of records um, found uh, in, in the book of Omni. So if we fast forward, a couple of verses struck me uh, just yesterday as I was thinking about what we we're going to talk about. So I, I just want to read uh, in the book of Omni, uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. Behold, it came to pass that Mosiah discovered that the people of Zarahemla came out of Jerusalem at the time that Zedekiah, king of Judah, was carried away captive into Babylon. Uh, verse 17, and at the time that Mosiah discovered these people, the people of Zarahemla, they had become exceedingly numerous. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, they had many wars and serious contentions and had fallen by the sword from time to time. And their language had become corrupted, and they had brought no records with them, yeah. and they denied the being of their creator and Mosiah, nor the people of Mosiah could understand them. Uh, but it came to pass that Mosiah caused that they should be taught in his language. Uh, and, and then this stunning phrase, um, they were taught in the language of Mosiah. Zarahemla gave a genealogy of his fathers according to his memory, and they are written not in these plates. So the, this detail about Nephi taking with him the records is not a throwaway line. It is pretty yeah. significant to the stability of Nephite civilization and really all civilizations. I remember reading um, a, a, a book, uh, a, a noted scholar in the field of Reformation history, and he said, you know, records are the collective or social memory of people, and that when uh, we don't have the records, that society itself erodes, it undermines the, the foundation, the political, the social, the intellectual foundations, and threatens the survival of the civilization, and we see that in the Book of Mormon. So uh, I'm actually grateful to Nephi that he was inspired to take records with him and to continue to, to make records. Um, we see that Nephi has ordained brothers, uh, Jacob and Joseph, to function in priesthood callings. Nephi has now made the small plates and that there have already been wars with the Lamanites. So <clears throat> there's a lot packed into the first five chapters of Second Nephi, and that's the context for uh, what's about to uh, unfold in, in chapter six. And, and maybe I can just add to that a, a little element of, of what we're going to see in chapters 6 through 10, um, which to me, one of the, the beautiful things about this is, uh, you know, Jacob's going to base his sermon on on Isaiah, yep. and Isaiah is woven in and out throughout the entire thing. Well, how would he do that if they hadn't brought the writings of Isaiah with yeah. them, right? Yeah. This, this beautiful sermon we're about to read would not be possible if they didn't have the writing so that Jacob could learn of Isaiah and know him so well that he can interweave him and, and use him in the way that he will uh, in response to all that has just gone on uh, for them. So a Absolutely. Uh, you know, we ask, where does this m wonderful, marvelous information come from that we find in uh, chapters 6 through 10? Well, yes, it's the scriptures, but the scriptures laid the foundation for both Nephi and Jacob to receive direct revelation from angelic ministers, angelic yeah. messengers. So I uh, I just offer that as a as something to keep in mind 
for the rest of our study of the Book of Mormon this year that records really make a difference, and they make a difference in our lives. Uh, and uh, and I just can't help but remember something that President Kimball um, <laughs> many years ago said, that we should be a journal-keeping people, and and who knows but what the angels may quote from our journals to our posterity. Uh, wow. So there's direct application to to us in all of this that we're that we're going to see. So um, chapter chapter six through nine or chapter six through ten have been called Jacob's covenant speech, and I know that you know a little something about covenants. I seem to have read a, a book uh, by you about that. And in this section uh, of Jacob's covenant speech, Jacob quotes, as you mentioned, uh, again from Isaiah chapter 49, which his brother Nephi had done. Uh, Jacob quotes chapter 50, 51, and a little tiny bit of chapter 52. And, uh, and chapter 6 begins uh, by reporting that Jacob uh, is involved in a two-day teaching experience with his people, his, his two-day covenant uh, seminar, if, yeah. if you will, you know, and, yeah. and uh, you get the sense if you'd have been there that he's really, he's dumping a lot uh, on his people, but it's so important for them to continue to have what Nephi has taught them and what Jacob now is teaching, I think, under the influence of, of his brother. And, uh, and if I may, uh, just a couple of notations about the influence of Nephi on Jacob. Um, for example, if we, if we look at chapter 4, excuse me, if we look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 6 of 2 Nephi, Jacob says this, And now, behold, I would speak unto you concerning things which are and things which are to come. And who doesn't want that information? Wherefore, I will read you the words of Isaiah, and they are the words which my brother has desired that I should speak unto you. And I speak unto you for your sakes, that ye may learn and glory and glorify the name of your God. So it, it seems to me that we never quite escape the influence of this righteous sibling, Nephi, yeah. on you know the succeeding generations and uh, how how invaluable uh, our, our righteous sibling who exemplifies uh goodness and righteousness is to a family and and you get this you detect this special bond between uh, Nephi and Jacob um and 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 just kind of uh Fast forwarding a bit, it seems to me that the great bond that they share is centered in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, yes. and I say that uh, if we if we look at a couple of verses from chapter eleven, so the uh, a a section just beyond our focus uh, this period, but right. it tells us so much. Verse 2, and now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto my children, to all my children, for he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And my brother Jacob 
also has seen him as I have seen him. So it seems to me that this special bond that they share, which uh, is evidenced in the very writings of Jacob and the very sermon of Jacob here, is centered on their absolute knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, and I just love that. I do too. And and uh, you get a sense, so I would even, <clears throat> uh, I think that's the core, but I'd, I'd add to it, their, their shared consecration to serving him and helping their people come to him, right? You just get the sense yep. in both of them that everything they do is about that, helping their people come to God through Christ. And and uh, so Nephi, who, you know, his brother it seems to have become, I mean, I don't think they were setting up things exactly the way we do, but seems to become like his first counselor, right? Or his right-hand man. Like in our yeah. efforts, he knows Jacob is capable and he may even be thinking in some ways of preaching, maybe even more capable because he gives him this assignment, but capable, uh, gifted, reliable. And so when they have something that needs to happen, he can say, Jacob, go, go do this. And I, I find it so interesting. I mean, Nephi has kind of given him his topic and his assignment, maybe like, you know, yeah. the president of the quorum would give the counselor something like sure. that. But, but I, a parallel that I find so interesting here is uh, we get these until we get this big chunk of Isaiah chapters that you were just reading the introduction to in chapter 11, which is Nephi saying, I like what I've done here so much. I'm going to do more of it almost, right? Yeah. Like what we're doing with bearing testimony of Christ, we're going to do more of it. Our first two introductions to Isaiah are, are first, and we've already covered this, but it's in in first Nephi, the end of 19, but then 20 and 21 and right. so on, where he does Isaiah 48 and, and 49. But what's just happened is they've just left the old world and come to the new world. And That's they right. seem to have questions about, uh, well, we, we, we're part of the covenant people, but part of the covenant was this promised land. If we're leaving the promised land, how do we fit into it? So he reads Isaiah to help them understand that the covenant applies to them. Well, in this case, chapter five is them leaving the promised land that he just convinced them was their promised land, right? And not yeah. really, it's not leaving the promised land, but I, I think they could say that, well, wait, we're, we're leaving again. Do, how, do we still fit into the covenant? So he gives Jacob this assignment, and what does Jacob do? Well, he goes right back to Isaiah 49 and keeps going from there, but he he hits these chapters where Isaiah teaches about the covenant and how it applies in, in to a scattered Israel and so on. And, uh, and so you see uh, Jacob paralleling Nephi as they come across a parallel need, and I, I, again, that the unity of those brothers is just remarkable to me. Uh, and there are many parallels that we could draw between uh, Nephi and Jacob. Jake, Jacob teaches the people just like his brother did because he's interested in the welfare of their souls. Yeah. Jacob reads from Isaiah just like Nephi did uh, uh, because Isaiah spoke about the house of Israel and Le Lehi's family are Israelites, as Jacob says. Uh, Jacob uses the likening principle. In fact, he uses the word lichen, just like uh, Nephi has done, uh, and teaches them about the gathering and the scattering of Israel. And, and you mentioned how uh, Jacob's first foray into Isaiah is reiterating what we have heard already, Nephi quote, and that's... Um, um, uh, Isaiah chapter 49. And, and I, I just, I, if you, if you allow me to, I just want to read those verses because yeah. I, I think these are passages that not only apply to uh, ancient times, but they apply to our day. And I'll try to show specifically 
how that is. So this is this is what Jacob uh, says uh, as he begins to read Isaiah. Uh, Thus saith the Lord God: Behold, I will lift up. What's my it, what, where are you at? So that we. I, uh, I'm in Second can... Nephi, chapter six, starting with verse six. Thank you. And now these are the words Jacob says. Quote, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, and the kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces towards the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So that's the end of the quotation from Isaiah chapter 49. There is a great article uh, by um, a person named Michael Benson. It's, uh, it, it appears in BYU Studies, and it's entitled, Harry S. Truman as a Modern Cyrus. And, uh, and Brother Benson says in his article, and I think it was actually part of his PhD dissertation, um, at Oxford, um, Brother Benson says that these verses in Isaiah 49 most likely refer to the tangible assistance, uh, economic assistance, political assistance, military assistance that was given to Israel as they began to reestablish themselves in their land of promise, just like Isaiah said that this would happen through the power of the Lord. And, uh, and, that, uh, and that the that this assistance by a modern nation in our day um, is reminiscent of that that was provided by Cyrus the Great in 538 BC. And, uh, and this is an excerpt from this really interesting discussion uh, from this article. Quote, mm. When Israel's chief rabbi paid President Truman, Harry S. Truman, a visit in the early 1949, in early 1949, and told him, God put you in your mother's womb so you would be the instrument to bring about the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years, tears rose to the president's eyes. The rabbi then opened the Bible he was carrying with him and read the words of King Cyrus from the book of Ezra, quote, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And that's the end of the quote from Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. And then uh, Brother Benson goes on to say, The Jews who wish for a state will have it, wrote Theodore Herzl in the summer of 1895, over half a century after Orson Hyde's prophetic prayer offered from the Mount of Olives on October 21st, 1841. And while Elder Hyde would probably never have thought that someone like the irascible man from Missouri, meaning President Truman, would someday help realize the petition that God inspire the hearts of the kings and the powers of the earth, history has confirmed that Harry S. Truman truly was a modern Cyrus. So the point of all of that is uh, Jacob is quoting Isaiah, and yet... Jacob is also quoting part of our history in modern times mm. as he does that, which I think is pretty cool. It, the, these, these texts apply to Isaiah's day. 
They apply to Nephi and Jacob's day, but they also apply to us. We're part of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I think that's just amazing that, it is. that we have all of these um, different eras line up and the fulfillment we see in our own day is a testimony that the, the Lord kind of knows what he's doing and what he's saying, which, uh, which I, and I, I think is the, maybe the overall lesson of everything that we're doing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But it's incredible stuff that uh, you're right. Isaiah is, uh, Isaiah is such a master in this way. And, and, uh, Nephi and Jacob help us see it. In fact, um, it occurs to me, and this idea isn't original with me because I think I've heard it before from others, maybe even from you, that Isaiah lived as many years before Nephi as Joseph Smith lived before us. So in a very real way, just as Joseph Smith was the prophet of restoration to us, Isaiah was the prophet of restoration to the people of Nephi mm. and Jacob, kind of a an interesting way of of looking at things. Oh. So yeah, what well, wasn't me? It was I, I didn't okay. say. It. Yeah. No. All right. Well, um, I don't remember who said it, but anyway, anyway yeah. I, uh, that was uh, um, pretty interesting. Uh, so in chapter six, Jacob goes on to teach uh, his people about the crucifixion of the future Messiah. Now remember. This is uh, 550 years before all of this happens, uh, which is, uh, again, uh, truly wonderful. Um, he Jacob teaches that the Messiah is the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Jacob uh, teaches the Messiah's association with the scattering and gathering of Israel. And Jacob also teaches in uh, chapter 6 a little bit about the second coming. Uh, of the Messiah. So if you if we look at uh, verse 14 of 2 Nephi chapter 6, Jacob says, And behold, according to the words of the prophet, meaning Isaiah, the Messiah will set himself again the second time to recover them. Wherefore, he will manifest himself unto them in power and great glory unto the destruction of their enemies. When that day cometh, when they shall believe in him, and none will he destroy that believe in him. So this clearly is not talking about the first coming of the Messiah. He, Jacob's talking about the second coming uh, of, of the Messiah. So the range of Jacob's prophetic discourse here, this covenant uh, discourse over a two-day period, uh, is truly stunning. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've made the point there. Um, and, and, uh, and the fact that, uh, that all flesh will eventually know that uh, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is their savior and their redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob makes this very personal uh, to his people. So this masterful discourse uh, really uh, begins in a very, very powerful way. In chapter six, um, I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to 
leave chapter six and move on to chapter seven if there's anything that you wanted to say more about chapter six i mean no we could spend two hours on chapter six but there's so much in this one we uh we better not so okay let's, let's move on all right so in jacob chapter seven excuse me in second nephi chapter seven we see jacob continuing to instruct his people by continuing to read from the prophet isaiah chapter 50 and then he'll move on to chapter 51 and and uh, in a, and quote a little bit from chapter 52. Uh, but in the beginning of chapter 7, we see Jacob using uh, the symbolism of divorce and slavery to describe the relationship that has developed between the Messiah and the people of Israel. Uh, and we see in the first two verses of chapter 7, phrases like, put thee away, a bill of divorcement, um, sold you, all conveying the idea of uh, uh, the severing or breaking of the covenant that God had made with his covenant people. And these were familiar constructs uh, in um, Jacob's day. There were familiar constructs in, in ancient Israel, even before Jacob. Very impactful, I should think, concepts to demonstrate Israel's dire condition. Uh, they had this most significant relationship with God, and something has happened to cause this to be uh, severed. And it wasn't the Lord who severed it. In fact, what Jacob is teaching is that the Lord is saying, it's you, O Israel, that have carried, that have caused the separation, not me. It's you, O Israel, that have broken the covenant uh, with me. Right. You've and, sold yourselves, he says. Yes, exactly. And, and in fact, uh, he, he goes on to say um, that when you sin, you're, you are a slave. You're no longer uh, a, a, an equal participant in the covenant relationship because you have become slaves to sin. Uh, th this is kind of a, uh, this, this refrain is picked up in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84. Uh, when you sin, you're in the bondage of sin. And, and that's the condition that Israel is in. Um, I think it's not inappropriate to point out that in ancient Israel, idolatry was regarded as spiritual adultery. Mm -hmm. That's how serious this is. And Jacob is bringing this to the remembrance of the people. And, and, and as spiritual adultery, Christ, who is the bridegroom, to use a, a phrase from the New Testament, uh, the Messiah deserves fidelity. He deserves loyalty. This intimate relationship between a husband and a wife is parallel to this relationship between uh, the Lord Jehovah, the Messiah, the coming Jesus Christ, uh, and, and uh, the people, his people, the chosen people of Israel. And, uh, and Jacob is saying, look what Israel has given up. So this, the stage then is set pretty clearly that yeah. uh, that Israel is in big trouble. And and if I could uh, just jump in on that, uh, in my experience, when I have taught this uh, book of scripture, 
to my students. Uh, if I am successful in helping them see that what Jacob is doing right here at the end of, of chapter six and the beginning of uh, chapter seven, and especially this this kind of refrain, like, I'm not the one that's cutting you off. Uh, you have cut yourself off, but I want to be connected with you. I can still redeem you. I can still have this relationship if you will have it with me, that if we can get that down as the uh, as the theme of what Jacob is doing, then suddenly we can see that this is a theme of what Nephi is doing with all of the Isaiah chapters he quotes, and the commentary gets gives us after that, which in the end means that this will help us understand most of 2 Nephi, right? Because if you're going to talk about from 2 Nephi 6 through, say, 27 or 29, that's most of 2 Nephi. And I think if you look for this theme in there, you'll see that it is what Jacob and Nephi are trying to convince all of their people that, and and we actually even see it in the title page of the Book of Mormon. So I think Moroni is doing it right. That idea that Israel is not cast off forever, and we, and we get the cast off phrase here in, uh, uh, didn't we? Uh, I thought it was here in verse one. Yeah. Uh, yeah have is. I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? Right. That that's. They are trying to convince people you are not cast off. Sometimes you sell yourself, but God is always there. As it says, his hand is not shortened. He says, is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem? But the idea is, no, it's not shortened. Uh, that theme, if we can keep that idea in mind as we read the chapters that we're doing today and all the chapters we do the next couple of weeks, it will help us understand what Nephi and Jacob are trying to do, I believe. Yeah, it, it strikes me that uh, the Lord, through Isaiah, uh, uses the illustration of the most intimate relationship among human beings, yeah. marriage between husband and wife. And, and, and now, that same relationship that should exist, that, that closeness between God and his people has been broken. But in that, in uh, verse 2, what you just said is exactly what the Lord says. He, The Lord turns around and says, you know, this is a broken relationship. Um, you're in big doo-doo as a yeah. result of it. Um, he says, am I not powerful enough to redeem and to save if you'll just return to me? Yeah. Uh, which is a tremendous illustration of the forgiving power of God, the, yeah. the love, loving kindness, and the mercy of God. Uh, that he'll he'll take us back if we just turn to him, uh, which is actually the basic meaning in Hebrew of the word for repentance, l'shuv, to turn. Yeah. If you'll just turn back to me, then the relationship will be healed and the relationship will be repaired. Of course, he's powerful enough to bring this about. So uh, summarizing then, the rest of chapters uh, 7 and 8, are basically examples of the Lord's, the Messiah's desire and power to redeem his covenant people and to, uh, or in fact, to accomplish any of his purposes. And, uh, and this to me, as you were, I think, alluding to, this is really um, a message for all ages. This yes. isn't just for, for Israel. This just isn't for the family of Lehi or uh, the the wayward followers of Laman and Lemuel. This is for all the families of the earth today. 
that this this is the basic message of of the Book of Mormon. Come to me, and 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 if you're thirsty, drink of the waters of eternal life. If you're hungry, feast upon uh, the feast upon the meals of fat things, as as we will discover uh, in uh, in uh, this later chapter, chapter ten. So um, powerful, powerful application to us today. Um, Amen. Yeah, one especially notes in chapter seven. I think uh, this is pretty significant. Um, in verses five through seven of chapter seven, where Isaiah seems to describe part of Christ's atoning experience by speaking as though he, Isaiah, was Christ. So if we look at starting chapters five through seven of, excuse me, verses five through seven of chapter seven, this is what we read. The Lord hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. So in other words, Isaiah is saying uh, that the Lord opened his ear, that uh, he didn't turn away, he listened very, very carefully, and this is what the Lord said. Verse 6, I gave my back to the smiter, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So I think Isaiah uh, receives this direct revelation about the future events of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's listened to them, and he's trying to reconvey what he's heard the Lord say to him, which I find very, very powerful. And, yeah. and, it, and it elevates, as though he needed any elevation, but it elevates uh, Isaiah and Nephi and and um, and Jacob as well, because they understand exactly what Isaiah is saying to even greater stature than he, than he already had before. Yeah, and I, I think that it's it's likely that in a way, I mean, Isaiah probably in a way is speaking of Israel as a whole, of himself, uh, of Nephi, of Joseph Smith, right? Because they're all yeah. types and shadows of Christ, so they all go through exactly. something that is similar to Christ, not to the extent that Christ goes through, very obviously. But, uh, but I imagine that as uh, that Isaiah has gone through some of that, and that as Nephi uh, reads it, or Jacob, who's been through so much in his youth and so on, as they read that, they can say, "Yeah, well, people spit on me, and they smote me, and uh, and and I had to set my face like a flint, right?" And so yeah. I under I understand this, but it just helped them understand Christ all the more and testify of Christ all the more, even though. Theirs was just a, a shadow, as we say, not not the substance right. that, that Christ went through, not not to the even a partial degree of what Christ went through, but still enough to to help us understand Christ more and for them to understand Christ more. Yeah, and and in verse eight, the Lord is near. Uh, this is a, a a plea for Israel uh, and the Lord to stand together, and the Lord will smite the adversaries of his chosen people, this special relationship that he has with them. He has the power to help all of us in any way that we can think of if we demonstrate the kind of faith that he's asking for 
in this covenant relationship. So chapter 8 then, uh, Isaiah turns to the last days, and, uh, and he promises to comfort Zion and to restore Israel. And uh, here we can, I think, maybe we ought to pause uh, and look at the parallel use of the two terms, Zion and Israel, because the, the parallel is pretty significant. Um, we, uh, the terms Israel and Zion, I think, can be and sometimes are confusing to those who hear Latter-day Saints use them. Uh, for example, the word Israel has a whole host of meanings, as all of our listeners know. Uh, it refers to Jacob, one of the Old Testament prophets uh, and patriarchs, whose name was changed to Israel. It also designates the descendants of Jacob or Israel, who become known as Israel or the Israelites. It refers to the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel after the ten tribes had split from the, the two southern tribes. Um, and, uh, and as in modern times, Israel even refers to this modern nation state. So what do we as Latter-day Saints, how do we use it? I think as Latter-day Saints, we use the term now as a label for God's covenant people, mm -hmm. uh, whoever, uh, wherever they are or have been. So Israel is now as we use it in modern times, is a is a general term as a label for God's covenant people. We might even say disciples of the Messiah. Um, it is the people who are learning and living the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the people of Israel. If we turn to the term Zion, turn to the term Zion, that also has a variety of meanings. As you know, it's used to identify the hill where the Jebusites um, um, had a, a prominent occupation, uh, which King David conquered and made the capital of his empire. Uh, Mount Zion is the designation for the Temple Mount in, in historical periods. Later on, the western hill of Jerusalem became known as Mount Zion. In modern revelation, there are many meanings. Uh, Zion is the city of Enoch. Uh, it refers to the New Jerusalem in Jackson County. Um, additionally, Joseph Smith even expanded the term Zion to include all of the Americas. Um, in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says Zion, this is section 97, is that Zion is the pure in heart. So again, or we get uh, in in the Pearl of Great Price in the book, book of Moses, you know, people who are of one heart and one mind, right? Yeah, uh, that's the city of that's the 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 principles yeah. that uh, uh, underpin the city of Enoch. So again, collectively, Zion also means the covenant people. Yeah, and uh, and so and, and wherever they are gathered, wherever they are gathered yeah. uh, in this last dispensation. Um, that uh, and those who join the covenant community are part of this special covenant people that are privileged to have this very, very uh, intimate association with the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, as the Book of Mormon refers 
uh, to the Messiah. So um, I I mentioned that just so that um, it brings some some sense, some some cohesive understanding of what I think we're referring to when we talk about Israel and Zion uh, in the last days. Thank you. Um, a few verses that stand out to me in, in uh, chapter 8 are verses 1 and 7. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. Hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness, look unto the rock from whence ye are hewn. Uh, and in and then uh, in verse seven, uh, those who have written God's law in their hearts, um, the the rock uh, from which we are hewn is of course the rock of Christ, and that's a pretty significant theme throughout all of Scripture. It, it, but to me, <laughs> uh, Jacob's saying, like, uh, look unto me, you who are chips off the old block, uh, you who, who are genuine disciples that are welded uh, with Jesus Christ in this covenant context. Um, verse 3 seems to me to convey the idea of the physical redemption of Israel's land uh, in these latter days. Uh, verse 11, uh, talking about the redeemed of the Lord who shall return, singing unto Zion and with everlasting joy and holiness written on their hearts. This, to me, uh, sounds like a reference to the second coming. Uh, verses 17 through 20 uh, suggest that uh, we're talking about events just before the second coming. Um, for example, uh, chapter in chapter 8, verse 17, uh, Jerusalem is described as having drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury and been wrung out to the very last drop. Uh, and as Isaiah will say later on in chapter 40, uh, she, meaning I think not just Jerusalem, uh, but both the literal and figurative parts of the covenant people, uh, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yeah. Uh, this this is evident in the different historical periods that we might look at. Look at uh, why have uh, sections or portions of Israel's family suffered so much, and and why for so long? Uh, well, in Second Nephi chapter twenty five verse nine, the Lord says, "Quote." As one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity, even so have they been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities. Uh, it, it's all based on the acceptance or rejection of this, of this offer of the intimate relationship with, yeah. with the Messiah. And I think uh, it's worth pointing out that that, that includes like, most of the time when we hear this, we think of, of uh, the group that we would call Jews now. But this, I, yeah. I think, applies to all of Israel, right? And so I would count myself in, in that and, and ancestors and so on. Uh, it applies to everyone who has been uh, of the covenant family. And uh, I would also think that, you know, I, I agree with you that like a lot of what we're reading, I think the primary 
fulfillment is in the the latter days or just before the millennium, some of them the millennium and so on. But I think it's likely that there are other fulfillments throughout time. That's the the beauty and genius of Isaiah, right? That he he writes things that that have multiple fulfillments. So uh, it's yeah. always just worth pointing Absolutely. that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, in, in verse 19 of, um, of chapter 8, Isaiah 51, verse 19, reads these two things. The Hebrew of Isaiah at this point uh, simply reads these two. But right. if you look at Jacob's rendition of Isaiah in verse 19, he has... These two sons are coming to thee. And so uh, it has been proposed by uh, scholars as well as of uh, apostles and prophets that uh, that second Nephi chapter eight verse 19 uh, refers to, among other things, two witnesses, two prophets in Jerusalem at the end of days, the time of Armageddon. And uh, this is a particularly significant theme in the book of Revelation. Who mm -hmm. John speaks of um, this vision of two prophets. So I am one of those that believes that Isaiah saw the last days in very specific terms, the same way that uh, John the Revelator saw uh, the last days in very specific terms, and that Nephi saw the last days in very specific terms, but the Lord says to Nephi, I want you to talk about the first coming of Jesus Christ um, uh, to Nephi, because it's going to be the Apostle John that's going to talk about the second coming, and, and it has its roots in the prophet Isaiah. So that's yeah. my, my take on that. Uh, and I, we wouldn't understand that without revelation, I think. I mean, and right. I think there are, again, other things like you can also take desolation and uh, destruction as being the two things. Or, you know, there are different ways to take it, but we know that there's at least that one very important way because of the book of Revelation and then the way modern uh, leaders have interacted with that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. All right. So now we get to um, the granddaddy, if you will, of the chapters in this section. Um after reading Isaiah, Jacob describes this unsurpassed revelation of Christ's greatest power. Uh, and that greatest power, of course, is to work out for us the infinite atonement, to uh, overcome death, to bring to pass the resurrection of all humankind. President Joseph Fielding Smith said this about 2 Nephi chapter 9, quote, it is one of the most enlightening discourses ever delivered in regard to the atonement. It should be read carefully by every person seeking salvation. Unquote. Uh, amen that, to that. that. That's a that's a pretty powerful endorsement. Yeah. And and I hope that I'll just use this as the our opportunity to remind our audience that as much as we are hope you're enjoying our discussion, that's uh, our discussion with you, that it just pushes you into reading and studying the scriptural text all the more carefully. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's, uh, if I understand, that's our ultimate goal with all of the podcasts and all of the general yeah. conference talks and, 
and and all of the activities that we spend so much time in with the with the youth is to get all of us back into the scriptures uh, and yeah. to to have as our primary commentary uh, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's probably the purpose of the scriptures is to help us to have truth revealed to us from God through the Holy Ghost so that we can be edified and, and uh, we draw closer to Christ. So, yeah. So uh, Jacob then begins this part of his, of his um, covenant discourse by saying, look, I've read to you Isaiah so that you would know about the covenants God has made with all of the house of Israel. And then he says this in verse two, that he has spoken unto the Jews by the mouth of his holy prophets, even from the beginning down, from generation to generation, until the time comes that they shall be restored to the true church and fold of God, when they shall be gathered home to the lands of their inheritance and shall be established in all their lands of promise. So uh, the the gathering, the restoration of Israel uh, is not complete until all of the house of Israel uh, recognize and become members of the true church and fold of God. And that is a very unique uh, perspective that the Book of Mormon presents that we we don't find, I, I don't think, anywhere else is that the the restoration uh, of of all of the house of Israel isn't it, it isn't fulfilled in their coming to possess their lands of promise wherever those lands of promise are for the different groupings of the house of Israel but it's only complete it's only fulfilled when they recognize and become members of the true church and fold of God and I think yes. that that's a, a, a an important principle to keep in mind when we talk about the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, and so uh, uh, we, we appreciate even more um, Jacob's uh, understanding of the brass plates and the fact that he was worthy to receive all of this inst instruction from an angel of the Lord. Uh, Jacob goes on to uh, explain that he understands, this is verse 4, he understands that uh, many have sought to know uh, what he will tell them about the resurrection and about the atonement, um, which really are one of life's greatest questions. He says in verse 4, For I know that ye have searched much, many of you, to know of things to come. Wherefore I know that ye know that our flesh must waste away and die. Nevertheless, in our bodies we shall see God. I think that this is the great question that's faced to everybody at one time or another. What about the future? Is this the end of everything? What's going to happen? And Jacob begins to address that this by taking us directly to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection, and the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall, and the fall came by reason of transgression, 
And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Uh, it, it strikes me that pretty much in one verse, uh, Jacob has described what Elder Bruce R. McConkie called the three pillars of eternity, yeah. the creation, fall, and atonement. And, yeah. and that's that's such a concentrated verse that, you know, we we can't do it justice, you know, in 15 minutes. Uh, it really does need to be unpacked by by individuals. And and you can hear echoes of Lehi's teaching to Jacob in Second Nephi two, right? You, you get this idea: Jacob was listening; he got it. He can he can now teach this in a simple, powerful way because he's understood what his father taught him. Yeah, and and again, the influence of the brass plates and the influence of of uh, angelic messengers. It strikes me uh, as not just interesting, but powerful that Jacob describes the plan of salvation as the merciful plan of the great creator. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, one of the things that the Book of Mormon does so well is it, is it uh, talks about the plan of salvation using different titles but helps us to appreciate different aspects of the plan of salvation. Yeah. So here it's the merciful plan of the great creator. Uh, in uh, Alma, it's the great plan of happiness, uh, the plan of redemption, the great plan of the eternal God, uh, the great plan of happiness. Uh, in in the, uh, the Joseph Smith translation of John chapter one, it's called the everlasting covenant. And in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, it's called the New and Everlasting Covenant. So different aspects of the plan of salvation, um, depending on what the particular prophet is focusing on, given slightly different uh, terminology. But it's just, it's so interesting to me that, that death is part of the merciful plan of the great creator, uh, even, even though it's a, it's a very hard thing for for us to endure when we lose loved ones, it's part of the merciful plan that God has in store for his children so that when they give up mortal life, they can be candidates for immortal life, for, mm -hmm. for eternal life. And then Jacob talks about uh, the, the fact that this, this redemption uh, that gives us a chance to um, repent and to become clean must needs be an infinite atonement in verse 7. Save it should be an infinite atonement. This corruption could not put on incorruption. Uh, this, uh, this decrepit body could not become um, eternal in nature. Right. And, and our decrepit souls as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and so... Um, Is this the first place we see the phrase infinite atonement? I should have looked into that, but it's just occurring to me, I think it is the first time where you I, see that phrase yes you, you're right this phrase infinite atonement used by jacob begs the question in what way is it an infinite atonement and you know there are i think of three or four different ways that it's yeah. that it's infinite it, uh, it it's infinite in the sense that it's timeless yeah. it embraces the past the present and the future uh, we talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ already operating in our behalf in our pre-mortal existence. Yep. Uh, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
and, yep. and 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 Adam is said his sin is forgiven him as he leaves the Garden of Eden. Yeah, he's already been Christ forgiven because been of the atonement the, of Jesus Christ, and and yeah. the, and prophets and Alma and and in Mosiah are always talking about looking forward uh, because the atonement has already in in essence taken place. It's it's as though not as though God has foreseen into the future and knows that Jesus Christ will perform the acts which constitute the infinite atonement. Yeah, it um, transcends time. It does. Yeah. Uh, and I, I sometimes uh, teach, uh, try to teach my students that uh, while it's true, we don't, in the church, we don't like the word predestination. Foreignation is, I think, the preferred terminology, the way we look at the plan of salvation. But there is one sense in which uh, predestination is absolutely correct. Those who are saved uh, are saved or predestined to be saved by the infinite and eternal atonement of Jesus Christ. This was never in doubt. Yeah. Uh, and, and by and, that, and I, you mean that the, the atonement was predestined, right? That's the predestined, predestined part. to occur. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, it was not, gee whiz, I hope this happens. It yeah. was a foregone conclusion. Now, what is in question is uh, m my relationship, right? You know, to to the to the atonement. Um, it, it's it's uh, it, the atonement is infinite in the sense that it conquers um, death, uh, and both uh, temporal deaths and spiritual death. Uh, it's yeah. infinite in the fact that it encompasses all of the creations that Jesus Christ was part of, worlds without number. Um, and we have many references to that. It's it's infinite in the fact that that Christ himself is an infinite being yes. who made this atonement. Uh, we, we have probably... Uh, could say much more, but yeah. I think well, we maybe to... one more that it's infinite in terms of that there is not, and and this is implied, and when you talk about all of creation, but there is not anything in all of creation that it cannot touch or redeem. Whatever you have done, you you you're not too powerful for the atonement to 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 reach, right? It, yeah. it is it's infinite in its ability to cover everything. Yeah, so it's infinite in time, infinite in number, infinite in space. And uh, scope, and scope, uh, and f and the fact that Christ Himself is an infinite being. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to move through this quickly because we're we're quickly running out of time. Um, in verses seven through twelve, Jacob teaches that the atonement uh, is um, infinite and eternal, and teaches us what would happen if there had been no infinite atonement. Yeah. And, uh, and just referring to verse 8, Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal Father and become the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become like unto him, and we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of God to remain with the father of lies in misery with the father of lies, um, uh, to be to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformed himself into an angel of light, and so on and so forth. 
How, oh, how great the goodness of God who prepareth a way for our escape and the grasp of this awful monster. So let me, let me cut to the chase. The bottom line for me is that what Jacob is teaching is that resurrection is redemption. Without any effort or action on our part, resurrection is part of redemption. It saves yes. us from the influence, from the eternal grasp uh, of Lucifer. And without it, we would spiral down uh, and become just like the devil. We would become, I suppose, sons of perdition mm -hmm. uh, without the infinite atonement. This is, to me, one of the reasons why when we talk about the atonement, we ought not to separate resurrection as though it were a separate thing apart from the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Resurrection is redemption. Resurrection is atonement. Yes. Look at what you get even without doing anything. You get relief from the grasp of this awful monster and from the influence of Lucifer. So I, I think that this is a, an important concept. Resurrection is part of the atonement. Resurrection is redemption. And, yeah. and that is given to all of our Heavenly Father's children. Powerful, powerful concept. Yeah, uh, and, it's, and it, it tied up with that is this uh, the kind of phrase, and I don't, I mean, he, he says it in different ways, but it gives us a phrase that has become, at least for me, and I hear a lot of other people use it, just incredibly powerful to think of the atonement conquering the twin monsters, death and hell, right? And yeah. so the, the, just that idea that, that there is death and there is hell, and the atonement conquers both of them. And that death part just comes automatically. It is a free gift. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. To quote the Apostle Paul. So verse 13, Jacob teaches the resurrection as part of the larger principle of restoration, which we mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, that uh, there is this larger law of restoration. Resurrection is part of that larger law of restoration. The soul shall be restored to the body and the body to the soul uh, and uh, and all things um, restored to their to their correct um, aspect. Uh, this is um, this is Alma chapter 41 verses two through four, uh, which I uh, again, the unique contribution of the Book of Mormon is overwhelming. Uh, mm. Verses 14 to 16, Jacob teaches the reality of the judgment. Uh, verse 18, which is a really interesting uh, verse, Jacob teaches that those who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it inherit the kingdom of God. And one wants to ask about this curious phrase, despise the shame of it. What does that mean? Uh, I, I, th I think I have some ideas, but it's, it is really... I think associated with um, how how we view eternity, how we view uh, Jesus Christ, how we view the atonement. Uh, are are we uh, more interested in what the world thinks of us, and thus, you know, we we kowtow to the world's way of doing things, or do we care more about God? and don't care what the world thinks about us yeah. as we um, operate in mortality. At least that's... I, I, go ahead. 
No, so sorry. You can finish what you were saying. Uh, probably wasn't worth finishing. <laughs> well, I think you're going to say at least that's that's how you take it. But um, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges of our day that this notion of not being so afraid of the judgment of the world that we cave into it and forget about the the importance of instead citing or letting God prevail more in our lives is another way of saying it. Yeah. I, I think it is a challenge that, that many of us, and especially uh, it's like maybe the 15 to 35 generation or something like that, but all of us struggle with this in some way. And I, I, I I've, you're exactly right. Yeah. I've wondered uh, if there's not another element of this, you know, and during the cross of the world and despise the shame of it. Um, that, so I think you're, what we've talked about is despising the shame that comes from us. But it may also be a little bit of despising the shame that came to Christ. So I, I know, I mean, I try to be full of charity all the time, but I have to tell you, when I read the account of the, uh, the trial with the Sanhedrin, for example, and I've, I've stood with you in a place where we talk about that and we read it. Every single time I start to bristle, I'm just so bothered by the way they're trying to humiliate my Savior, uh, right? And and or when they're uh, he's on the cross and they say, you know, oh, he he saved others, why can't he save himself? And I know he could, right? And and I bristle at it. It's the the shame that 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 they're trying to heap upon him. And I know it didn't bother him, but. Uh, I struggle. I don't like that. And, and, and I don't want to do it in a way that I become bitter and angry and so on. But I do think that there should be a part of us that doesn't like that Christ is mocked. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a great insight. Uh, the word despise is a strong word. Um, and I think it's, it's a carefully chosen word in, in these passages of scripture. We'll come across it again in second Nephi nine, uh, verse 42 uh, but it it means to look down on with contempt mm. and uh, and so uh, nothing I think is in the Book of Mormon without um, a careful consideration of of its meaning uh, just to finish up uh, well and, and if it's all right just before and I know we yeah. don't want to take too long but before we move on from that verse I also just love the very last phrase which we didn't read their joy shall be full forever, right? Yeah. So those who endure the crosses and despise the shame because they believe in the Holy One of Israel, they're faithful to them, joy shall be full forever. There are a lot of people I know who right now their their joy is struggling, right? Yeah. But you can take comfort in the fact that if you stick with Christ, your joy will be full forever. What more could we ask for? It is uh, it is part of the doctrine of Christ that's described in different chapters in the Book of Mormon. The one that comes to mind is Second Nephi chapter thirty one, talking about what the doctrine of Christ is. And part of the doctrine of Christ is that as we endure, our joy increases until it becomes full yes. in the the glory of the kingdom with our Father in heaven and His Son Jesus Christ. Um, I, I remember hearing uh, one of our beloved apostles, Elder Scott, say uh, he he w wished he could uh, add to that phrase, uh, enduring to the end in joy, because that's really what the Lord wants us to do. Yeah. And it comes, I think, as, as we revel in the realization of what Christ has done for us, uh, it is, uh, it is, it really is beyond words, words 
human language escapes uh, uh, the the true meaning. I didn't say that very well, um, no. but I, yeah. I think you did. Yeah, human language. All right. So um, verses uh, 24 to 39, Jacob teaches about punishment and law. Um, if we read verses 23 through 26, we come to appreciate uh, who Christ saves through the atonement uh, in these verses. Um, those who are not under the law, first of all. Second, those who have the law but uh, but break the law, but who repent, are baptized, and develop uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, those who have endured the crosses of the world, as we as we just said, uh, and uh, and how how is it that that all of this can be brought about? It's because of the atonement, yes, but it's also because Christ is the perfect judge. Uh, Jacob says in verse 20, oh, how great the holiness of our God, for he knoweth all things, and there is not anything save he knows it. And it's only he who knows everything and can judge righteously with perfect wisdom and, 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 uh, and perfect um, justice, if you will. So uh, th that's part of Second Nephi chapter 9. Uh, one of the questions that I think that comes as a result of reading uh, verses uh, 28 through 30 is, uh, what it is that causes men and women to forget the atonement. And mm -hmm. to me, it comes down to the issue of pride, the principle of pride. And uh, verse 42 has another uh, stunning statement that uses the word despise. Uh, verse, um, verse 42 of 2 Nephi 9, Whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the wise and the learned and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth, and say they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down to the depths of humility, he will not open un, unto them. So again, this, this word despise, which here has kind of an ironic uh, meaning. If the word despise means to look down upon, with contempt, uh, those because of their learning or their wealth look down on others or look down upon by the Lord. And President Benson said this, uh, that the two groups of people who have the greatest difficulty with pride are the learned and the rich. Yeah. Um, I, I don't usually consider myself uh, rich, uh, but the truth of the matter is most of us live better than 99% of the rest of the world yeah. in terms of the blessings and the material things that we have. And, and have I, had more opportunity for learning than 99% of the world. And, and I have to tell you, Carrie, I do think about this a lot. Um, do, do, I, do I look down upon people because I think I know more than they do? I sure hope I don't. Yeah. Uh, but it's a constant, you know, it's a constant battle uh, with the world knocking on my door and saying, uh, you know, you ought to take a look at uh, at the norms and standards of this fallen world 
uh, as opposed to the things that you find in scripture. Yeah. That's what it comes down to for me. In fact, I think we could maybe put it this way, and I hope this isn't uh, too harsh. I, I don't mean for it to be harsh, but I mean for it to be a, maybe a little bit of a wake-up call for me, you, and everyone else. Uh, if you are able to listen to and you have the desire to listen to and understand this podcast, you are probably automatically in the at-risk category for part <laughs> of what he is talking about here, right? We, yeah. I think we are in the at-risk category. In fact, I often... When I teach this, I talk about, and as you've said, we've got these verses to talk about who is saved under the atonement. But when we get to verse 27 and it starts to talk about you have the law given, but you you transgress it and waste your days. I think verse 27 through 39 is Jacob's description of people who struggle with taking advantage of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He said, it's easy. It's here. You can take advantage of the atoning sacrifice. That's what he said up through 26. But 27 is the list of these are the people who will struggle. And there are all sorts of things. So I'm just going to invite the audience because we're not going to go through all of it. But go through and look at it that way and, and see what kinds of people he's saying really have a hard time taking advantage of that atoning sacrifice and being redeemed. And hopefully, you know, like verse 30, the murderer who deliberately killeth, I'm, I'm going to assume most of our audience doesn't fit into that category, right? But there are a number of these think, yeah. that we should look at and say, I'm in the at-risk category, and if I am not intentionally trying to remove myself from that, so just as the example, to be good learned is good if they hearken to the counsels of God, right? We have right. to find the thing that makes it to take us out of being at risk, because if not, we're going to fall, right? We're at, we're at risk. So just like if you're at risk for some kind of disease, take the steps to get yourself out of that category. That's what we need to do with this spiritual disease list that, that uh, Jacob gives us here. I couldn't agree more. I think you said that very, very well. Uh, well, I can't leave uh, 2 Nephi 9 without uh, commenting on uh, my um, two favorite verses. This is uh, verse 51 and 52. Wherefore, and, and this is part of the discussion we've just been having about how much the world influences us. Right. Uh, wherefore, it's, it's also a place where he's reworking Isaiah. This, this is paraphrase yep. of Isaiah. But... Yeah. Wherefore, do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me and remember the words which I have spoken and come unto the Holy One of Israel and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted, let your soul delight in fatness. Well, fatness of a different kind. Some of us are already in that stage, but the worst kind of fatness, right? So we need the, we need the richness of what uh, Jesus Christ offers us. Behold, my beloved brethren, remember the words of your God. Pray unto him continually by day and give thanks unto his holy name by night. Let your hearts rejoice. And so... Uh, that's, that's the encouraging message. That's the positive, uh, ultimately positive message of all of the prophets is come unto the Holy One of Israel and let your hearts rejoice. Um, it's, uh, it's such a blessing to have the Book of Mormon, uh, that, uh, that will nurture us and satisfy our, uh, our deepest yearnings, um, we won't have a chance to talk uh, about to chapter 10, but chapter 10 is day two of Jacob's covenant discourse. 
and it contains uh, both good news and bad news. Uh, we learn, uh, uh, I think we learn in um, verses three through uh, three and four, uh, why it is that Jesus Christ, among all the creations, all the worlds without number he created, why he was sent to this earth, um, and uh, and that uh, the more wicked part of the world ended up residing on this earth, and that none other nation on earth would crucify their God. That's verse 3. I think that that's uh, helpful for us to understand the total perspective. Uh, and, and the good news is, is that we know from Abraham chapter 3, some of the very most righteous of our Heavenly Father's children were sent to this world, to this earth, but also some of those who were not the mm. very most righteous, who are among the most wicked. Uh, ultimately, it says to me, God is in charge. He knows his children. Uh, he knows what we need. He spent eons and eons with us in a pre-mortal realm. Um, and this plan uh, that he has provided for us will bring us safely back to him if we allow allow it to. And uh, part of the, the, the great tool, the great blessing that we have is the Book of Mormon. Uh, and I, I do say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Andy. I, I am positive that our audience has been as edified as I have been. Thank you for that, and and oh, we hope that you. they will. Uh, uh, that we we hope that uh, if you have been uh, touched by this, or if it's made the scriptures more real, or you understand it better in some way because of this, that you'll share it with others, uh, talk to people about it, uh, like, download, rate, review, share it on your social media, whatever it takes to help people be edified uh, by both these chapters and by the teachings of Doctor Skinner. We would encourage you to do. Um, and I also want to let people know a little bit about our other episode this week, and then we can talk about um, next week as well. But uh, we have a really special second episode. So uh, it's always special when we have Andy on. The second episode this week is going to kind of it's uh, focus on this idea of of being cut off from God and what do we do to uh, when we have this fear of being cut off from God. But we do it by talking to uh, Dan Debenham. And if you're not familiar with that word he, or that that name, he's the host of Relative Race. Um, and uh, that's a, a show where he works on getting people who have been cut off from their parents or siblings or something like that and reuniting them. Um, and, uh, and, and we compare that to uh, Christ trying to reunite us with God. And uh, it's, it's just got some amazing stories and some powerful insights. Uh, and I encourage everyone to listen to that one and share that as well. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's a great episode. It's it, uh, a really fun one. Um, and then next week, uh, we will uh, have a joint pod, uh, broadcast with uh, Tammy Uzalak Hall from uh, Sunday on Monday. That's going to be one that's both the Scriptures are real and Sunday on Monday broadcast uh, as we go through some of the Isaiah chapters. And uh, Dr. Matthew Bowen from, or, uh, from uh, BYU Hawaii will also go through some of those uh, Isaiah chapters with me. So we've, uh, we've been fed so well here, and uh, there's plenty more to come. We hope you'll all uh, feast on the fat things. Uh, so uh, thank you again, Dr. Skinner. You thank have you. blessed my life. Oh, thank you so much, and, and you as well. <laughs>